Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. This morning's reading comes from Haggai 1, verses 1 to 15. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Well, this week and next week, as we enter 2024, we're going to be doing a two-part series on Haggai, which, if you don't know, is a book in the Bible. Why Haggai? Why Haggai? Despite the fact that it is an often neglected book of the Bible and an unfamiliar book of the Bible, I think Haggai, this prophet who lived around 2,500 years ago, has something to say to us to us, East Vancouver, today. And to hear what this is, this week we'll look at Haggai chapter 1, and then next week we'll look at Haggai chapter 2. But before we unpack Haggai's word and what it means for us, we must first understand Haggai's world. So just permit me a few minutes of teaching to, to set the stage here. To understand Haggai's world, we actually have to leave the book of Haggai and go back in our Bibles to the book of Ezra. 
See, as we come to Ezra and Nehemiah in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, Ezra and Nehemiah is just, just one book, we find Israel returning home, having been carried off into captivity some years prior by the Babylonians. The Babylonians themselves were eventually overthrown by the world's first superpower, Persia, and the world's first super king, Cyrus. And while the Babylonians had this policy of assimilation, right? No retaining your culture, you now observe our culture. No worshiping your gods, you now worship our gods. Think of the book of Daniel and Daniel's experience in Babylon, right? This melting pot idea. Cyrus, on the other hand, was revolutionary in that despite his brutality, and he was at times certainly brutal, he had a foreign policy that was marked by tolerance for the culture, tolerance for the native customs, and tolerance for the deities of the conquered nations. So in 538 BC, Cyrus, true to his policy of tolerance, he issues a decree that you can actually read about in Ezra chapter 1. I'd encourage you to do so. This decree allows the exiled people of Judah to return to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple. And so they go. They go. Upwards of 50,000 people, men, women, children, horses, mules, camels, donkeys, they proceed westward towards Jerusalem. And you can read about this in Ezra chapter 2. If we keep on going in Ezra 3, we find the people arriving home to not, you know, flowers and, and, and loveliness, but to ruins. And they begin to rebuild the temple amidst the ruins. But in Ezra chapter 4, we find the people encounter opposition. And look at Ezra 4, verses 4 to 5. We, we read this there. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. For 20 years, there's even a reign of another king between Cyrus and Darius. For 20 years, they do not work on the temple. They do not work on the temple in Jerusalem. Until, that is, Haggai and his counterpart, Zechariah, they arrive on the scene. And so if you have your Bibles there in Ezra 4, you could insert Haggai there. It's important we see this morning that Haggai comes to a, a stagnant people. Haggai comes to a distracted people. Perhaps most honestly, Haggai comes to a persecuted, a hurting, a discouraged, a wounded people. And while all of these adjectives certainly don't describe all of us, are you beginning to see that why we're in Haggai for the next two weeks? Th this morning, let us let Haggai's words travel from 520 BC across time to inform how we live today in 2024 AD. In this first chapter then, Haggai would have us consider three things, very simply three things. First, our misplaced priorities. Second, the futility of disobedience. And third, the hope of repentance. Let's look at our first point. Number one, our misplaced priorities. Look again with me to Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, 
the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Well, this house, that's the temple, lies in ruins. Now, in, in small ways and in big ways, these first four verses are intended to convey to the reader in flashing lights, things are not going well. Things are not going well. They're going poorly, very badly. Notice, for example, Judah's status as this weak, insignificant, struggling, recently returned from exile state. It's on full display. See, unlike Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and Amos and Micah and Zephaniah, the prophet Haggai does not date this book, does not date his prophecy by the reign of a king in Judah, because there isn't one. No, he has to instead date his word from the Lord by Darius, the king of Persia. Now, these people don't have a king. Instead, what they have is a governor, which is basically a ruler appointed by Persia named Zerubbabel. More on him next week. But perhaps more concerning to Haggai, and indeed any observant Jew reading this for years to come, is that it was the sixth month, and then listen, on the first day of the month. Now, according to the law, the first day of the month is a day of making offerings, a day of making sacrifices before the Lord in the temple. There is, of course, no completed temple, so there is no place to make offerings, and thus offerings and worship is not being performed. And so God speaks into this dire situation through Haggai to two men of standing in this fledgling community, Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, saying this, Haggai 1 verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Let's pause here. One of the reasons Haggai is seldom read, besides being hidden in our Bibles at the back of our Old Testaments, is that many people have come to believe Haggai's message to be irrelevant. They hear something about rebuilding a physical temple and think, it's not for me. It's not for me. It's interesting historically, but it's not for me. Listen to how one Bible scholar explains why people ignore Haggai. He, he writes this, We do not know what to do with Haggai in the canon, that's in the Bible. He crops up in the midst of the goodly fellowship of the prophets like a misguided stranger from the wrong part of town. No cry for social justice escapes his lips. No assurance that God dwells with the humble and contrite. Instead this commentator says, he reeks of something that smells very much like the external and superficial religion of which we would all like to be rid. Haggai's concern, God's concern, with rebuilding the temple seems like a shallow, materialistic message in comparison to the other prophets. Seems hardly relevant. 
In fact, and this is just a little aside, it's why Haggai, if it's preached at all, if he's preached at all, is typically only preached, right? If a church is undergoing a building project and something is said to the effect of, just like they built the temple back then, we should build the new church building today. I think it's important then that we just step back and, and, and hold our presuppositions that we bring to Haggai and understand his world even further still. See, there are a few things we have to get about the temple if we're to get Haggai. And the first is this, and we've seen this already in the text. Without the temple, many aspects of proscribed acts of worship could not be done, simply could not be performed. What the law had told Israel to do, they could not do without a temple, both corporately and privately. Additionally, it's worth clarifying here, while the temple was a place where the Lord manifested his presence, manifested his glory, that's true. It would be wrong to think that faithful Jews thought God's presence was entirely limited to the location of the temple. It'd be wrong to think that. Keeping in mind, one of the great comforts that God had spoken to his people in Babylonian exile was that I'm present with you, even in Babylon, even out here. Keeping in mind, in our text that we read this morning, before the temple is rebuilt, before there is a physical building, what does verse 13 say? Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the temple then should not be thought of as some sort of large-scale talisman that summon God's presence back into their midst. That would be wrong. Nor was the temple some materialistic and superfluous comfort for bragging rights among the nations. No. Rather, the centrality of the temple in Jerusalem was to be a physical signpost drawing Judah, drawing God's people back into establishing Yahweh as center in their lives, which means this, listen, a people then ambivalent to the temple in Haggai's day were a people ambivalent to God. A people ambivalent to the temple were a people ambivalent to Yahweh, to the Lord, ambivalent to him being honored among the nations. And what Haggai now reveals is that the source of this ambivalence is misplaced priorities. Look at verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house, that's the temple, lies in ruins? This phrase, paneled houses, just means simply roofed-in houses. In other words, your houses are done, but the Lord's is not. Your houses are made, you've done a nice extension on them, right? Dug up that pool in the backyard, but the Lord's remains in rubble. And you can hear Haggai saying, you've taken care of yourself, but in doing so, you've missed the plot. You've forgotten your purpose as a people. Again, let's press pause for a moment. Perhaps you think, given all that's transpired, given all that these people have experienced, that Haggai is being too harsh. After all, making a living, making a future for yourself in a land you've only just returned to is backbreaking work, excruciating, exhausting 
work and, and perhaps the people wanted to respond as, as I would have wanted to respond to Haggai. You want me to work my six to six and then come home and spend my evenings rebuilding the temple? What, what's more, as the passage from Ezra 4 reminds us, there are enemies lurking in the shadows. There's discouragement externally at every corner, people actively working against their work, hostile forces bribed, paid to ensure they don't succeed. Admittedly, these sound like really good excuses. Concerningly, they are likely far better reasons than we have for having misplaced priorities in our lives. And still the Lord does not accept them. See, above everyone and everything else, the Lord requires his people to place him first. And in case we're tempted to write off Haggai as this demanding, taskmaster, Old Testament prophet, we do well here to be reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, when he said this, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It has always been true that whether we're in exile or recently returned from exile, whether we're in Jerusalem or Vancouver, whether things are looking up or they couldn't be any worse, the Lord wants us to put his glory, his name, his kingdom, his people, before ourselves. So here's a question. What would it look like to take all your energy, all of your tools, all of your gifts, all of your money that you've been using over here on your house, on your initiatives, on your desires, on your wants, and offer them first to God in 2024? To offer your life first to the Lord, this year. Like Haggai's audience, we have been brought home for a purpose. Not that we would shrink back in fear in the face of persecution. Not that we would adopt a scarcity mindset as we anxiously hoard our resources, but that we might make him, the Lord, our supreme priority. And the irony is, for for both them and us, when we don't seek first the kingdom of God, none of these other things we desire are added to us anyways. We don't get life anyways. Let me show you what I mean. This is our second point, the the futility of disobedience. And so now we ask, well, how would the Lord respond to a people with misplaced priorities? How has he responded to these people with their misplaced priorities. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins. 
while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Consider your ways, we hear repeatedly. Pay close attention. The Lord, through his prophet Haggai, says, Have you experienced futility? Sown much, but harvested little? Eaten, but still hungry? Clothed, but still cold? Are you wondering why you're not prospering as a people? Why everything feels so hard? Why it seems like not just people, not just nations, but in fact heaven and earth have turned against you. All of creation has turned against you. Have you felt that? He hears why, says the Lord. I've done it. I'm doing it. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. I, the Lord says, have called for this comprehensive drought. Why? Why, Lord? Why have you done this? Haggai 1, verse 9, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. This is shocking language. It's hard to stomach language. But it's language that reminds us that God's supreme end is his glory. That God, in his strange kindness, will take disobedient lives, misprioritized lives, and jam-fill them with futility and emptiness until they find their proper aim. Why would God do this? Is it because God is a a cosmic tyrant with such low self-esteem that he makes my life hard so that I might pay attention to him? Right? Like a child sort of, you know, like pulling on your jacket, pay attention to me. Is that who God is? A, a, A petty, impatient child? I don't think so. I think it's because God, again, in his kindness, what gives him most glory and what does us most good is the same thing. In God's kindness, what gives him most glory and what does us most good, what leads to our flourishing is the same thing. Ready? Obedient lives. Lives lived in submission to his lordship, according to his word, by the strength of his spirit, alongside his people. Obedient lives. What the Lord is describing in Haggai 1 is the same curses and blessings he had talked about in Deuteronomy 28. It was clear there that to disobey as a people was to incur cursing. To obey was to welcome God's blessing. And Haggai is saying, listen, your disobedience, your going your own way, doing your own thing, prioritizing yourself above the Lord is futile, empty, worthless in giving you satisfying lives. The, the experience of Haggai's audience calls to mind a paradox that we have before us today as well, does it not? Again, Jesus said, Matthew 16, verse 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
like in Haggai's day. All our efforts today to save our lives, preserve our lives, to find meaning and satisfaction and wholeness apart from God will come up empty. It is only when, Jesus says, we lose our life, we lay down our priorities, lay down our dreams, that we paradoxically and strangely find that we truly get life, truly receive life. One of the most persistent lies I encounter in pastoral ministry, both in other people, but also honestly in myself, in my own heart of unbelief, is that God is holding out on us. That God is holding out on us. That there is a good life over here, and what God offers to us is something less, right? Something more boring, something less thrilling, it's less. This morning, though, this year, we're reminded that there is no life outside of Jesus. No life, no joy, nothing outside of obedience to his commands. There is no better thing that God is keeping from us. There's no hidden pleasure that God does not want us to discover. See, long before Haggai, David prayed, Psalm 16, verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is what? Partial joy? Sort of happiness? Right? Enough to just get by? No, there is fullness of joy, David prays. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Generosity proceeding from a generous and affectionate and caring and loving Father. Do you believe that, Christ City? Do you believe that? The good news is that if you haven't believed that up until this point, and you're feeling this morning, you're, you're sitting in the futility, the emptiness of your disobedience, what happens next in our story reminds us that even in a period of time as brief as 23 days, things can change quickly. Let's look at our third point now, the hope of repentance, the hope of repentance. One last time this morning, Haggai chapter 1, this time beginning in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Where does repentance begin? Where does repentance begin? And the people feared the Lord. No longer did the people fear not meeting their own pressing needs. No longer do the people fear the surrounding nations still lurking very much in the shadows. The people now fear the Lord, and, and for good reason. Four times in our passage today, four times, Haggai has called the Lord by the name the Lord of hosts. That is, as, as Joyce Baldwin, the commentator, says, the one in whose name the prophet spoke is Lord of all powers, 
seen and unseen, in the universe and in the heaven, the Lord of heaven's armies. And what is there to fear if your God is the Lord of heaven's armies? Repeatedly, Haggai reveals God to be that to these people. Repentance for misprioritized lives begins with a healthy fear of the Lord, a recognition that there is no power and no person other than him who is worthy of our fear. And the good news is that as Jesus shows us in Matthew 10, right fear of the Lord, while beginning with a recognition of God's awesome, surpassing, unmatched power, eventually leads us in Christ to marveling that this fearful God is for us, that in Christ, this fearful God has revealed himself to be our protective and loving and gracious and compassionate and joyous Father. Look at what Jesus does in Matthew 10. Watch him make the movement from fearing the Lord to receiving the Lord as our Father. So Jesus says in Matthew 10, verses 28 to 31, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, Jesus says, fear, fear, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. But then he says this, listen, look look at the transition. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Then he says, fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. In Jesus, in the gospel, we discover that the Lord of hosts does not have his sights set against us any longer. His armies are not towards us, but we're revealed, the Father's revealed to us as a loving, compassionate Father whose armies are behind us and for us. So who will you fear in 2024? Who will you fear? Right fear, of course, soon gives way to obedience. In our text, we saw this. No one is exempt from the expectation of obedience. From Zerubbabel, the governor, to Joshua, the high priest, to all the remnant of the people. Obedience has always followed repentance from their age to ours. Notice, however, this outward fruit of repentance didn't come right away. Our passage ends by telling us that there was a period of 23 days before Haggai's initial preaching and the resuming of the work on the new temple. Now, it could be, it could be that that's how long it took for them to gather supplies, right, to dig up the old plans. In fact, it's been 20 years since they were touched, so there's probably dust on them. It could be it being August and all that there was harvest to tend to before they could devote their energy fully to the work of the temple. Whatever the case, I think just pastorally and as a community, there's a reminder for here there's a reminder here for us this morning that while obedience is always found in true repentance, obedience is always found in true repentance. It's not always found with the immediacy and intensity that we like. A few weeks ago, I, I challenged us to be a faithful people, all of us to be faithful people, people who in our steadfast presence in each other's lives reflect God's faithful and trustworthy character, people who in our steadfast showing up, showing up on Sunday, showing up to community group, 
showing up when people are hurting and need a presence in their lives. Haggai reminds us that faithfulness with one another means persisting in loving relationship even when it seems like we're spinning our tires. It means being committed to a person, to a people, even when they don't change with the immediacy and the intensity that we'd like. It means that we'll need to be a patient people. Sometimes for 23 days, often for much, much longer. Because, as Haggai also reminds us, repentance is ultimately not a work of willpower, but a work of God's Spirit. Do you see that in our text? Our text ends so hopefully, so wonderfully. In an intentional pairing, look at this, see this, every single person listed in these verses who obeyed the Lord and feared the Lord has an encounter with the Spirit of the Lord. From Zerubbabel down to all the remnant of the people. The Lord, who declares through Haggai, I am with you, proves it by creating this radically sacrificial, spirit-empowered work ethic among his people. He does it. He creates it. He stirs up the people. He gives grace to the people. He empowers the people. So maybe the thought, and we'll end with this, the thought of prioritizing the Lord in 2024, maybe it terrifies you. Maybe it just terrifies you. Not because you don't love him. You do love him. Not because you don't fear him. You do fear him and you do want to honor him with your life. But because you're tired. And the thought of making him that priority just seems like it'd be more exhausting, more impossible for you. And you can't imagine mustering the strength and the conviction to do what he's asked. Don't miss what Haggai has for us this morning as a church. Don't miss what Haggai has for us this year in 2024. That which the Lord calls us to do, he will graciously empower us to do. Not by giving us marching orders from a safe distance, right? Not by mailing us a letter with the right instructions. No, the Lord comes and dwells among us and by his spirit stirs up our spirit. Christ City, we can do nothing apart from the work of the Lord's Spirit. We are desperate on Monday morning when we wake up and we're really tired and there's a whole week ahead of us for God's Spirit. We are desperate on Friday, having gone through that exhausting week for God's Spirit. And on Wednesday, when that conflict comes up with your children, with your spouse, at work, we're desperate for God's Spirit. If God is not with us by His Spirit this year, then in each of those instances, on Sunday morning, Monday morning, Friday afternoon, Wednesday in the conflict, in each of those instances, we are helpless. But the good news is, the good news is, is that in Christ, God's Spirit is with us this year. He has not left us. He has not abandoned us. 
he is with us. For those who seek his kingdom, for those who recognize the futility, the emptiness of their disobedience, hear this as God's promise to you in 2024 from Haggai 1 verse 13. Let this be your verse of the year. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And surely that is true.